0: Good evening, everyone, or good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. And I would like to welcome you to this book launch. We are delighted to be hosting uh, tonight Steve Schwartzman. Steve uh, needs little introduction. He is a graduate of that great institution called Yale College and of Harvard Business School. He has had a long and distinguished career in finance. And of course, he is a founder and CEO of the Blackstone Group, one of the largest and most successful private equity firms in the world. Steve was also very interested in and active in public affairs and he is an active philanthropist who's contributed to a number of leading universities and uh, who is perhaps known in the world of philanthropy for his work to help the West learn about China and to foster mutual understanding between China and the rest of the world. We're here tonight to discuss what it takes, lessons in the pursuit of excellence, which of course is the title of Steve's recent book, in which he discusses, you guessed it, what he learned in the process of building a great company and of leaving his mark on the world. What we're going to do tonight is um, have a dialogue between the director of the LSE, Baroness uh, Minoush Shafiq and Steve. Uh, Steve will tell us about the book, then uh, Minoush and Steve will have a conversation and uh, we will save the last, 45 minutes to half an hour off tonight for a QA with the audience. And I should add that we have lots of people joining from all over the world. And we thank you for joining us in this conversation. So, Minush, over to you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Andres, and welcome, Steve, virtually to the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, it's great to have you here. So I'm gonna start my questions uh with uh, with your own personal story and then move on to issues of philanthropy, politics and the current crisis and its challenges. So let's start at the very beginning. You start the book by talking quite a lot about your family and you speak with great affection about your parents and they clearly played a huge role in shaping you. Tell us a little bit about what, what role they
2: played. Well, my... Uh- my mother was an extremely aggressive individual uh and uh, always wanted good things to happen uh for us uh and my dad was uh very smart uh he was a track athlete uh in high school and college and uh he ran a store uh, with his father uh that looked a little like what we call in the states bed bath and beyond uh that basically had towels and sheets and curtains, uh, and that's what he did for a living. He had a wonderful sense of humor and was a very kind person. I had two uh, twin brothers. I was not the twin. Uh, they were younger than, than I was. Uh, and uh, we would laugh uh, at meals, uh, and we always had uh, a good time. Uh, but it was quite clear we were meant to be competitive and successful but I, I've now deconstructed this and realized the way you do that is is you you never really tell your children that they've done a good job, and there's no achievement uh, which uh, actually uh, warrants uh, almost any recognition, which then takes this little rabbit and has them continuing to run uh, around a track or something. So um, it was it was a happy. Uh, environment, uh, but there there was no real, uh, as we say in the trade, uh, attaboys uh, for getting good grades or winning races or doing anything distinguished. It was just assumed somehow that you would do that.
1: Interesting. Well, so you talk also with affection about someone who, uh, who, who, didn't also provide a lot of praise, your high school track and field coach, who you described as teaching you to have a, a high tolerance for pain. Uh, could you say a little bit more about what role that played in shaping you?
2: Uh, sure. He was, uh, his name was Jack Armstrong. He was uh, brilliant. Uh, uh, for those in the audience who ever uh, competed in uh, high school or junior high school, um, I, I was never uh, uh, on a team that ever lost uh, a meet, uh, and that's not because of me. Uh, you know, in his history, uh, he, he had a record, I think it was like 184-4, and four, something like that. So that means that that individual uh, could take anyone randomly from high school and turn them into as good as they can be. It's, it was all about the coach, not just the talent. The talent always thinks it's the talent, but but that's not the way it worked. And 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 so he, you knew you were in the hands of someone with enormous domain mastery and you would do for him whatever he asked mm-hmm. uh and in fact the, the the training was so rigorous uh that we all looked forward uh to meet day because it was like a day off you only had to run two or three times mm-hmm. it was nothing to it uh and 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 so you were just so happy uh to not be training uh, that, of course, you know, you have the ability because of his training to win. So it was really great. Uh, and I, I love the camaraderie. Uh, and we we were, I guess, we came in fourth in the United States in the junior championships or something and state champions. And I, I remember always being pushed completely to the limit uh, where you'd basically be on the ground doing something unattractive uh, with your lunch uh, and you know that's that that was what was the order of the day
1: Amazing. and presumably you took some leadership lessons from that track and field coach
2: yeah what you learned is uh, he was very funny we'd be out miserable weather and he'd be dressed up in his maroon outfit with his stopwatch and and whistle and he'd uh, sort of as you go by him running, you'd say, well, you got to make some deposits in training so you can make withdrawals on game day. And, and so you, you knew why you were there. Uh, and you play your heart out for him. And it shows in terms of lessons learned that you can be a completely decent, inspirational person. Uh, and, and kids will, will sort of go that extra uh, mile. Uh, for that individual, for their affection, if you will, uh, and approval uh, and excellence. Um, so he was he was a remarkable guy.
1: Let's move to your to when you started your business career. And in the book, you 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 have a quote where you say entrepreneurs are made, not born. That's probably very reassuring for all those people. out are trying to teach entrepreneurs and incubate entrepreneurs. When did you realize that you wanted to become an entrepreneur?
2: Well, I I didn't know there was a title and I probably couldn't have spelled it anyhow. It's a long word. Uh, And, you know, I always liked doing things. Uh, uh, You know, I started a lawn service uh, and I would get the uh, customers and my brothers would do the work. Uh, I thought that was a great division of labor. Uh, (laughs) It was a lot harder to do the work uh but i convinced them that it was harder to get the clients because if you don't have any revenue uh in this pr- pr- primitive model there is no business and and so we expanded that and and i would do almost anything uh to get some money uh only because you know i was i think my allowance was like 10 cents which depends it doesn't matter which country you're in when somebody said you got 10 cents uh for a weekly allowance that meant not much uh, and so, if there was anything I wanted, I had to create it uh and And so, I was always doing uh new things when I was the head of student government. Uh, I basically said, "I don't want to be a normal head of a student government. let's come up with something new, something nobody's done. I always liked that concept uh because it's fun uh it pleases people uh it demands a certain level of uh conceptual ability and imagination, but also uh, execution. And, and so uh, I, I was like that, but I, I really didn't understand that that kind of talent to put on a rock and roll concert with a number one uh, in the United States group uh, without paying them, uh, that, that was a good trick. Uh, nobody thought we could do that, uh, that that could be translated into uh, anything as as an adult
1: well, so exactly on that theme you've got a wonderful quote in the book about thinking big because it's just as much effort to to think small and so you may as well think big and i've also heard you talk about your philanthropy in the same way that it's about being transformational and having a big impact but that approach also means you you're you're running big risks how do you think about that balance between risks and rewards uh, in, in your business life in particular?
2: Well, we only go wrong with our assumptions, right? So the assumption that there's big risk with doing big things is not true, um, uh, in my view, and uh, the way it's worked out. Uh, that, that the key of doing something that's really uh, significant is, is waiting till you come up with a situation. Uh, where everything lines up, where, where you can see it. Uh, and as soon as you, you see it and evaluate where you are, if it's something that's compelling, it's got to be completely compelling. It's got to be very substantial, can be expanded to, to, to meet, you know, sort of a huge aspiration. If you see something like that, you just do it. You do, you don't hesitate. Uh, but it's hard to find things like that. You, you don't do it by just sitting around. You have to, at least in my case, you have to see things that stimulate it. So, so you know, whether it was starting, you know, the Schwarzman Scholars at Chenwa uh, uh, to deal with China's relationships with the rest of the world, a modest aspiration, uh, and, you know, getting the president of the United States and the president of China to endorse something like this and raising all the money, uh, raised uh, somewhere around $550 million. Um, you know, I put up about 125 uh, of that so far. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was just a wonderful idea in, conceived in 2011, when you could see, you know, China's acceleration uh, in the world and and sort of the broken glass that happens uh, as a result of that. And And so I just looked at That one, I'm just giving you that as an example Uh, You know what the Rhodes had done uh, sort of in the British Commonwealth and uh, their reputation around the world. And if we could get a group of people who was extraordinary uh, and bring them to China uh, and let them learn so they can go back to the rest of the world and explain what was going on uh, from their perspective uh, and also feedback to China, uh, what the world was thinking about what they do, that that could be a fascinating group of future leaders that could potentially impact the dialogue between the two countries. Well, that turned out to be a very good idea. Uh, And we just finished the admissions uh, last Sunday. I think students were notified for the next class. And, you know, we accept like 4% or something of the applicants, and they come from great schools like LSE. Uh, where it's already tough, uh, to, to get in. Uh, and, and so whenever I sort of go into action, it's in response to some large trend that I see and a solution, uh, for what I think is, is easy success just because of the nature of the forces involved in those large situations. Uh, and, and then I bring on people, uh, who, who, who are tens. Uh, on, on a scale of ten, who could help me get that done? And then we build something, uh, and and so I I, I I don't view these things as just sort of conventional philanthropy. On the one hand, or commercially, uh, we do the same thing. That's how we started with no assets, and now we've got close to six hundred billion. Uh, sort of a miracle in a way.
1: Let me ask you about the risks, though, because you you launched this. Uh this kind of massive bridge building visionary program between the U.S. and China. And now, of course, the trade war has erupted. There are huge tensions between the U.S. and China. How do you see uh, the risk that you took with Schwartzman scholars? And do you still remain optimistic about the prospects for a broader understanding between the U.S. and China?
2: Well, I got a good friend, uh, Hank Paulson was uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary. And Hank said to me at the time, Steve, the timing, uh, for you doing this is absolutely perfect. Uh, it'll never be, it was never done before. It'll never be done, uh, afterwards. And, and, and nobody else could have raised that much money and marshaled, you know, the pro- forces, uh, that, that created that. And, and so, you know, when I look at it, Manush, looking backwards, I go, wow. Uh, that seam was pretty narrow uh, to get that done compared to what I thought at the time, which is why, as a rule for the people who are listening, when you see something that's going to work, you think. You just go at it with such speed and, and such focus because you never know how long anything will stay in place when you're dealing with very significant uh, forces, some of which are uh, cyclical uh, type forces, others of which are evolutionary. You just don't know. Just because you see it doesn't mean it will stand still uh, waiting for you. So so in answer to your question, obviously uh, things have gone on uh, a track now that's, that's very difficult, uh, you know, with China and rest of world. Um, uh, somewhat exacerbated, I think, uh, by a change in uh, U.S. policy as, as well as, you know, to some degree, China policy uh, really changed uh, significantly. Uh, and, and, and those two forces uh, leave the world in, in a bit of confusion uh, as to where things are, are going to be uh, uh, going. And, you know, we have a new uh, administration um, uh, yeah, coming up. Uh, in the United States, and so there'll be a different tone, Uh, there'll be a different uh, measured uh, uh, approach. Uh, There may be a lot of similar policies, but not all of them, Uh, and, you know, we we may be looking uh, today uh, at close to a low uh, in terms of relationships with uh, the U.S. and uh, China, Uh, and I think both countries uh, look at that and go, boy! This is this is not so good. This relationship and the idea of doubling down to make it worse uh, strikes me as a little bit illogical. Uh, and it may well be that um, this provides an opportunity to people on both sides uh, to to look at this uh, and and say, okay, we've each established our bona fides. This doesn't work very well. Uh, where might we go? Uh, where there's some uh, mutual overlap, uh, we can build some things.
1: You um, you mentioned uh, hiring 10s. and In the book, you, um, you talk about how in the beginning, when you're first starting, you can't really recruit the best people. But then once you get established, you can really hire the best people. I think a lot of our students will be very interested in hearing from you. What are the top three professional attributes of a 10. What do you look for in a 10?
2: Well, there are more than three. Uh, one, you have to be... <laughs>
1: you can give me uh, more. I'm sure they're happy for the get advice.
2: It's helpful to be quite smart. Uh, you have to be able to, to see uh, patterns or see things um, uh, of where you should be going and where you should avoid uh, 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 danger. Um uh, you know, uh, you have to deal well uh, with uh, stress. Uh, you can't you can have that affect how you handle uh, things. You, you have to have a certain personal chemistry uh, so, so you can uh, connect with other people, either to sell them things uh, uh, or uh, recruit them. Uh, uh, tens hire nines and tens. Nines higher, mostly eights. Uh, Eights higher, sevens, and sometimes sixes. Uh, You don't want them because it's not optimal uh, for your mission uh, if you're at the the beginning uh, of building something. I also think, um, in terms of tens, um, they have to be able to have some uh, uh, EQ. Uh, Just the idea of being super bright and and an oddball uh, works in certain sciences um, which, which aren't potentially more team-oriented, but if you're working with humans, uh, you know, establishing trust, uh, being honest, um, being authentic, uh, being accessible uh, to other people uh, is, is very important. And, and what happens when you have a 10 uh, you know it. Nobody has to explain to you what you've got. If you recruited Michael Jordan in the basketball business, um, you would know Michael Jordan, LeBron, uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, that's just basketball. Uh, you, know, uh, you know it when you have uh, people at uh, the university uh, who gives great lectures, You know who's oversubscribed, uh, you know, uh, who's doing breakthrough work, how much of a breakthrough, uh, and sometimes you don't know that immediately. It's, you, know, you see that over the course of time. Uh, who do you want to recruit uh, as your best junior faculty? You're not looking for eights or sevens. You're looking for tens. Uh, and, and so how do you gauge that? And and it's pretty easy uh, uh, to identify. The final thing i would mentioned on this Uh, is that uh, very bright, nasty pieces of work uh, don't have a place uh, in my life. Uh, You know, I've met people like that. I used to work with some of them when I was younger. They always sort of scared me and made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, And and now you realize you can find amazing people who actually are nice. and, And it creates a much better, more productive environment.
1: So let me take you to uh questions of the skills for public life. You've got a chapter in the book called Answer When Your Country Calls, and you yourself have played a role in politics and public service. Now, our school of public policy at the LSE is in the business of producing leaders for public for public policy. And we've got a decent track record at the LSE of producing more than 37 premiers, presidents, and prime ministers around the world. So what would you what would you advise our students who are considering a career in public affairs and public life, and how might that be a bit different than what you would advise someone going into the business world?
2: Well, you know, we produce a lot of people for public life uh, at, at the Schwarzman Scholars, and and they go into uh, large departments, uh, typically, occasionally uh, uh, elective office. Uh, that's different than the business community uh, where. You know you're going uh allegedly to make a profit although now you know much more diverse portfolio of responsibilities uh uh that 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 you have uh when i was young i uh, I sat down with a wise man his name was averil Harriman, uh and he spent some time in london uh during uh, world war Two. uh and uh, he was ambassador to- R- russia uh and and um dealt with the Lend-Lease program and so forth. Uh, And I said, you know, I'm interested in public service. And he said, young man was at his house, which itself was amazing. Uh, Young man, uh, are you independently wealthy? And I, I thought that was some kind of joke, except I realized how rich he was. And I said, no, I'm not independently wealthy. He said, that will make a great difference in your life. And consequently, I recommend you go into business, make as much money as possible, and then you could go into politics and no one will own you. So, you know, I was 21 years old. I said, OK, that sounds good to me, uh, which which is what uh, I did. And, you know, I'm not a, a politician. Uh, I'm a business person. And, uh, you know, I try and help my country. Uh, I I think certain of us through the accident of our lives, I was saying before we started to to news that, that uh, George W. Bush was in my uh, college at Yale, which is like a dormitory, if you will. It's like a college at Oxbridge. Uh, And I I met his father uh, there as well. Uh, And both of them became president. Uh, And I've met other people accidentally uh, in my life, and I'm, I'm just like a straight middle class person. This is all like a dream in a funny way. Um, and, and so when you know people, it's very easy if you have a knowledge base that they don't, and, and they want to know something, it's very easy, uh, to help. Uh, and so I like helping people just sort of generally uh, as a person. Uh, and when your country needs some help, if, if, if a president reaches out and says, what should I do with this? Or can you help me think this through or something of that type? Geez, what a privilege uh, to be able to help uh, your country. That's it, how I look at it. And from being around some of these people, being an elected official requires different skills than a business person. Business people don't have this compelling need to be loved. Uh, you know, they're, they're more well-adjusted. Uh, and, and they have enormous domain expertise in, in something that they're doing. Whereas uh, political people tend to be much broader, uh, and, and, and not as knowledgeable typically, uh, about certain areas. So when, when they take their positions, they're being asked to do a lot of things, uh, which they aren't completely comfortable with. And if you can help, uh, what a wonderful thing to do.
1: So let me, um, bring you back. You mentioned your time at at Yale and, uh, I think you, uh, you studied what we would call social sciences at the LSE. Um, and we, you know, pride ourselves on being the best social science institution in top ranked in Europe and the UK. And, uh, and we think social sciences, uh, help us understand the world. You've invested a lot. In artificial intelligence, and I think you have a strong belief that it will transform our societies. Uh, so, as a social scientist, tell us why you think AI and big data are going to change all of our lives.
2: Well, I, I, I loved uh, studying social science, and and uh, you know I I was in a major that you could only could have had in the late 60s called culture and behavior, uh, and. You, you had a seminar twice a week, uh, I guess you call it in the UK, a tutorial uh, with, with your little group of eight uh, people in the major, uh, along with a, a, a professor of sociology, anthropology, uh, uh, biology, uh, and um, um, psychology, I think, psych, uh, biology, and anthropology. It was a study of the human being. And I was always curious about human beings. Why do they do what they do? Why don't they do other things that are sometimes uh, logical? And I've used that. I never have had an economics course. (laughs) Somehow I've managed to cope. I I never had an accounting course either. And, you know, so you you can pick stuff up like that. Um, uh, And you look at systems as if they're alive and, Human uh, and figure out where they're going to go, what they're going to do with some form of uh, pattern recognition, if you will. Now, with AI, uh, AI is such a powerful uh, technology. When deployed uh, in different areas, um, it, it, it'll progress knowledge, progress research, uh, and enable uh, humans to do some things they couldn't do. It should. Uh, make a big impact, for example, in the educational uh, area and and lead to more distributed education in different parts of the world that right now, you know, you have to go to great universities. At some point, uh, you'll be able to tune in to great universities, which you can to a degree now, Uh, but it's just the start. And we're seeing it now on a Zoom. It's pretty amazing, right? I mean, I'm in New York. You're in London. I was just on with China, uh, you know, earlier uh, today, and some other places. Uh, we're transforming the world now. Now, AI itself can can benefit uh, a lot of different areas in in pharma, for example, and medical discoveries. Um, the power of, of, of AI is going to be uh, quite uh, profound. On the other hand one reason that i'm interested in this field uh is is that there are potential bad things that can happen to humans uh like unemployment uh or discrimination or other things uh that can really hurt people's lives and and so how you deal with a new technology that's profound uh is is worthy of a lot of thought one thing i would share with you which i found Stunning when I, I gave some big program uh, to MIT and um, their school of computing. Uh, and uh, they, they had an event to sort of kick it off for the university. And they had the great people of science, one after another, come up on the stage for like 15 to 20 minutes. And each one of them said, we're sorry we invented the internet. What a disaster. If we had only known, we wouldn't have done it. And I'm not a technical technical person. I'm just sitting there thinking, what? When the first person said that, I thought that I hadn't heard it right, or he was like an odd person, but one after another. And what they said is we thought oh, we invented the Internet and pioneered it that it was going to be great in terms of moving information around the world, connecting the world. Actually, we've unleashed a monster that's threatening uh, liberal democracies, uh, creating tyrannies, uh, leading to um, um, lack of freedom of speech by bullying uh, people and all kinds of things. And if we could go back, because we don't know how to correct it now. And we've launched the world on a course that we that none of us could have even anticipated. That with AI, we're not gonna do that because in effect we've learned and we have to be careful about what we do. Uh, and there has to be a balance between what we can do scientifically and what we should do uh, for the benefit of humans
1: interesting so let me bring you to the current state of the world and in particular in the book you talk a lot about how you can turn crises into opportunities and I guess um, we certainly have a crisis at the moment uh, so this is the moment how uh, what do you think needs to happen so that this this terrible pandemic crisis doesn't go to waste what should we, what should we learn from this
2: I think this uh, pandemic has um, um really affected uh, virtually every person's uh life and the ability uh not to travel uh, and and you know leave aside people getting ill and some not recovering so well and and other people you know with uh mortality and and voluntary stopping the economies of the world almost simultaneously with, with enormous, uh, you know, economic damage. Uh, for some people, it, it's completely tragic. Uh, and, and all those corollaries of depression uh, and alcoholism and drugs and, and not going to hospitals and, and sort of because you're scared of getting COVID and, and, you know, you, 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 you're, you, 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 you don't test yourself for cancer and you get cancer. There's so many bad things, the, the, you know, there's lots to be learned. One from, uh, you know, preparation, uh, which we all did just about none of uh, as uh, societies. Uh, there's there's uh, observing uh, what's worked and thrived uh, in, in um, you know, this um, uh, pandemic in terms of the use of technology uh, and And development of technology that uh, uh, that uh, works uh, uh, for people uh, but the miracle of it is even though we've got this huge spread and people can't go to bars now or parties or whatever uh, um, th- that uh, there was an announcement this morning uh, by an American company uh moderna that they've developed uh, a vaccine. It's 94.5% effective. This is like a miracle. So without having great math skills myself, I can't imagine a world where, in, in, the, in the best case, everyone takes a vaccine. Uh, take a developed country. Everyone takes a vaccine. They're 94.5%. There ain't going to be a lot of COVID uh, after that. That's going to just snuff that out. Now the question of how much time does it take to get there? What kind of delivery system do you use? Because a lot of this stuff, uh, at least these two, the first two, uh, Pfizer uh, and and Moderna, need uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, cold uh, to preserve. Uh, it's unclear that that's going to be the case with uh, uh, the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. Uh, but um, I mean, imagine we did this as a culture. Educated people in the science area did this in less than a year. This is a miracle. And so even though things are terrible right now, and, and that's when you turn on the news, that's basically all you hear. Um, that, 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 that's true. They are terrible. Uh, but if you look out, you know, sort of six to nine months, uh, you, you're probably going to have Vaccines much more uh, distributed, uh, obviously, than now, which is zero. Uh, And it'll start affecting the economy, the human spirit. Um, uh, And within a year, if you take a year from today uh, without my going out on a limb and sawing myself off, uh, it's hard to imagine you won't have profound changes in people's psyche uh, and all kinds of good things or f- used to be familiar things, uh, reestablishing themselves. And that raises a bunch of other questions, of course, um, which is who gets the vaccine? What's the sequencing? How fast can it be produced? Uh, and a variety of other questions for, uh, ethicists. Uh, so, so, um, you know, there's lots and lots and lots to be, uh, to be learned, uh, in our country, uh, we've seen that death rates, uh, uh, among uh, uh, certain ethnic groups uh, are way higher uh, than they are for others. Uh, and that health care generally, we, we don't have the benefit of UK health care. You see, we, we don't have uh, the national health service uh, that some people get amazing health care in the United States. Uh, some can argue the best in the world um, and, and other people don't. Uh, and, and the, consequence of that from a societal uh, position is sort of unsustainable. Uh, and how do you fix that? Uh, and so there are all kinds of profound and serious questions that have been uh, revealed uh, and need to be answered as a result of the pandemic.
1: Just to follow on, on that, you know, I think a lot of people describe the economic and consequences of COVID as sort of K-shaped. You know, We had the sharp drop and then some some sectors are going to do well, and some are, are are never going to come back. What's your take on the K? Who, what, where, what parts of this will, what what sectors will be permanently transformed and maybe never recover? Retail, those kind of things. And which ones do you think are going to benefit enormously from the pandemic?
2: Yeah, well, you can you can do it both ways. You know, which ones really work, which ones won't. I think in the won't category. Um, the, the, what what the pandemic has done is accelerated trends that were already happening. So, for example, um, uh, uh, physical retail was look, uh, losing out uh, to online, <laughs> and it, it just became supercharged. Uh, and you know it, it, that's not uh, going to come back in nearly the same way. And the value of malls and Uh, Other types of physical retailing are going to be uh, really hurt uh, very much the way newspapers uh, were hurt uh, in the prior cycle uh, with uh, disruptive uh, technology. It's going to take a while uh, for international travel uh, to to come back. Um, That'll probably be the slowest uh, uh, to recover. Uh, There's the whole issue of work and where work is done. How many people are going to work remotely? Uh, Are are they going to uh, be coming to their offices? Never. Once a week, three times a week, five times a week. Uh, um, There are certain occupations that may be uh, 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 different in that regard. So for example, what we're finding uh, is that our IT people really like working from home and are much more uh, productive. Whereas our investment people, our deal people who operate in uh, groups, uh, you know, they, they enjoy being back. Uh, yeah,
1: and, introverts and, have done better than extroverts in this crisis.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so, so what you learn is there are different styles. There's also, um, uh, in our country, for example, it doesn't have to follow in yours, uh, though I think a little bit, uh, is is people are discovering secondary cities. And other places to live, as opposed to just being, you know, in, in, in a few major cities, uh, which is, you know, they're making somewhat different choices uh, w- with their their lives. On the other hand, um, the stuff that's really rocking and rolling is is in technology, and it almost doesn't matter what it is. Almost everything is is either being disrupted, uh, or it's a disruptor. Or if you have a decent-sized company, you've got both phenomena happening at the same time. Uh, and, and so uh, how you uh, manage that uh, and how you think about it uh, and how you position things, um, there, there's really a revolution uh, that's that's going on. On the other hand, um, because people are fleeing urban environments, uh, at least temporarily, housing is booming and anything that touches a house. Everybody, besides Netflix, uh, everybody wants something good, something improved in their home because they're there uh, all all the time. Uh, And and so that's developed. Uh, uh, Cars, uh, surprisingly, uh, because nobody wants to fly anywhere. And in our country, it's a pretty big place. Uh, If you're not gonna fly, how are you going? And also just being in your home sort of drives you half nuts. So, so you just have to get out, uh, and and so cars, surprisingly, uh, you know, are, are doing extremely well. So, so I I think we we have to monitor this, uh, but it's really uh, resulted in uh, huge uh, winners and losers um, uh, as a result of the pandemic.
1: Let me um last question for me. One of the most striking things about your book is the acknowledgement section in which you thank, it's quite striking that you thank from presidents to people who were very personally close to you uh, and kind of everything in between. But you also thank people across the political spectrum ranging from Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. And you, uh, you, you've you you managed to kind of bridge the political polarization that we see uh, these days. Now, particularly in light of the recent U.S. election, how do you think it might be possible to overcome the polarization that seems to characterize so many societies, particularly the U.S., uh, particularly after this election? And how, how can we unify our societies again in the, wake of, uh, in the wake of this?
2: Well, that's a great question. And there's at least... 330 million people uh, who would like to know that right answer uh, who are in the United States, let alone, you know, the other developed world countries where there's a lot of friction. Uh, and, and a lot of that friction comes from social media. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to uh, manage uh, a liberal democracy uh, with people constantly attacking everything you're doing. Uh, if you're a leader. Uh, and, and um, you know, technology has basically blown a hole uh, in the media world uh, because once you lose your advertising, uh, you, you're sort of hard-pressed to survive unless you go to very narrow uh, verticals uh, where, where you can assemble an audience. And that narrow vertical almost demands, uh, you know, sort of um, a slanted, uh, biased, selective <laughs> you 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 get the right adjective uh, type of mm-hmm. uh, of news which people take in uh as if it's truth uh and uh, i'm talking uh, you know sort of both sides if you will um uh, uh, of issues and and so you know we we have some structural uh, issues now uh that are um, uh, problematic uh, to get back to a more balanced um world. In our election, which was interesting, we, we, um, we, we had a new president, uh, you know, who's got the most votes now, it looks like, Joe Biden. Uh, and, and on the other hand, uh, what was supposed to be a huge uh, left-of-center wave, uh, there was no left-of-center wave. In fact, it was right-of-center. Uh, and uh, how do you explain something like that? It's that the people... Uh, didn't want to go extreme one way or another. Uh, you have populations that are basically saying, "Boy, each each of these these um, areas, uh, you know, of extremes are threatening. They're threatening to uh, freedom of speech, uh, cancel culture. How do you how do you have a normal dialogue with people who believe things like that?" So I think. Uh, there's a need to reestablish uh, a center. Not everybody is is an extreme on one side or another. They get popularized uh, by media. Uh, and so you think that's what a country is. Uh, as, as it turns out, since we just had a large-scale vote uh, with, I don't know, 160 million people, they've said that's not us, that that's not who we are. And, and so I think you have to start out uh, with a unifying figure, uh, uh, man or woman, whoever it is, uh, who can bring people together and be rational and calm. Uh, I, I, I think you have to be transparent uh, with uh, issues and, and talk about, you know, sort of the benefits of going uh, either way. Uh, I think it's a tough task for a leader, uh, but I think we have a society despite the fact that they've broken apart a bit, uh, who actually wants that? People don't want to live with these extreme issues, each side of which thinks if they don't get their way, they've been threatened. Uh, I I don't think that has to happen like that. I don't think society basically wants that. You you could have 20% of the people, uh, 10% on each side just say to not be controversial, uh, who, who might want to feel that way. Uh, but the rest of us, we sort of like to just live our lives uh, and and make our contributions and and you know sort of do good things. Uh, we don't really want to be involved uh, with 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 those passionate uh, uh, issues uh, that seem to motivate uh, people.
1: Claire, well, let me uh, turn it over to my colleague Andres Velasco, who will. Uh, who will now moderate uh, the very, very many, I think there's almost a hundred questions that have come in. So, Andres, you have a tough job of uh, synthesizing uh, the questions. Over to you.
0: Thank you, Minouche. Uh The number is rising uh, every second. I think 97 and rising is the actual number of questions we have received. So I will apologize in advance to many people who have sent questions and who inevitably Will not get, get to hear that question posed to uh, to Steve, but we have lot, you know, we have a fair bit of time and lots of very good questions. We're going to start with two questions posed by an LSE Student Society, which is actually co-sponsoring this event. That is the LSE Alternative Investment Society, and they've sent in um, a couple of questions. And because they're co-sponsors, we have agreed that we will start with those. Um, the first one, Steve, is this. Um, you've said that you don't think you would get hired by Blackstone today, but you're clearly a 10 uh, having built up Blackstone. Um, do you think the f- the firm's process for recruitment is going wrong? Or do you think that the kinds of 10s that firms are looking for have changed across time? Well, I give that a lot of thought. Uh, and... Um, uh, <laughs>
2: At our management committee about a year ago, uh, I, I was thinking about this issue. So I asked everyone around the table, uh, how many of them were sumas? Can they put their hand up? And there were no hands. Uh, and then I asked how many were magnas and there was one hand. And then I asked everybody else uh, who's a, who's a cum laude? There were no hands. So I said, so the rest of us are just like astonishing losers, but, but we're running the place really well. And what's wrong here? I mean, do we need losers like us? Uh, we're hiring all these sumas uh, and, and people who we could never equal, uh, in terms of, uh, intellect. And, and, and so, uh, it it is a very good question. Um, and in a way it's horses for courses. Um, what, um, what do you want somebody to be doing? Uh, if you if you want somebody to be looking at a completely um, uh, uh, sort of uncertain group of information, uh, you know you find it there if they're really good at pattern recognition, which doesn't necessarily correlate with you know being a suma, uh, which is sort of a logical uh, a way of thinking. My partner when I started the firm was a suma; he could figure out anything. But it did take him a while. I, I could usually figure it out almost instantaneously. That's why we were terrific. He was a check uh, on what I thought and we were you a know, very good team as a result. So you need a mix of people uh, and, and you need people who can do different types of things. Uh, we, we were just so excited uh, that we could hire all these amazing people that we've hired them and they're really great. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know for different types of things um you know the, 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 they won't look for the what's not working uh so much as, as somebody who uh um, isn't as as highly logical um that just observes something and says that's that, that, that's a precursor of something that's not going to work and it's not an exclusive pattern of thinking uh but but it does uh show you there's a lot of room at the inn, if you will, for different styles of thought.
0: Actually, there's a student who says that he or she, I'm not sure, there's no name, applied for a summer internship at Blackstone I was turned down. And so the question is, what advice would you give me to give to turn my career around and have more chances next time? Well, you should tell that student they're in the
2: vast majority. So so we 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 had um, um, 88 uh, positions uh, and uh, entry level positions, and we had 21,000 people apply. So my math skills aren't so good, but that's a bunch below one percent. Uh, you know, as an admission, it's really hard. Uh, and 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 so um, what, what what I would say is is you know to to be hired at any really a good organization you, you have to have good, good grades uh, you you have to have uh, the ability to show uh, that that you can achieve things uh, n- not just uh, be smart uh, you, you have to show there's human understanding because all of us are observing uh, events except when we're doing data analysis uh, but even then you have to say what does that mean what what what's that really telling you What's the person going to do at the end of that chain? Uh, And so I can't give you as neat an answer as to how to get through that thicket of all those people. So I'll stop talking on this one.
0: But on on that note, uh, and this is the other question from the uh, Alternative Investment Society, you mentioned pattern recognition a couple of times. and, And in the book, you mentioned that old TV show Name that tune in which, you know, the uh, the competitors just hear one or two notes and they have to recognize the song. So there are really two questions in one. First of all, looking at the world, what patterns do you recognize today that people should be aware of? And secondly, for students, what advice would you provide so that they can improve their skills to pattern recognition?
2: Well, what I'd say is you should be aware that, that there's almost nothing that's stable uh, almost everything is going through a period of dislocation uh, and and movement uh, and sometimes good for you sometimes bad for you uh and and so you you should figure out um where the world is moving and try to place yourself uh, in, in an area that will benefit uh you know from from your skills. In the olden days, uh, when I was young, they actually had industries and companies that were there uh, for a hundred years. Um, <laughs> I I think there's some statistic of what the you know the sort of the age of the company is now, and the Standard Poor's 500, and Poor's five hundred and it's shrunk down uh, enormously. And so we're living in the age of accelerated change, based around technology, uh, and and so you you need to prepare yourself. By recognize, recognizing that, and that will give you opportunities for things. Uh, and if, if you're not alert, uh, you know, when I was went into uh, uh, finance, there are there no, no patents in, in finance. So I, I, I did uh, in the, the second interest rate swap, and we got a fee of 1%. And they, I think they do them now for 1% one one uh, hundredth of a percent. Uh, the margins just collapse. So I was introduced to the concept that nothing is stable uh, very early. Most people aren't. The things they see around them, they assume, will always be there. That's that's not necessarily true.
0: Well, the world certainly looks anything but stable, at least to me nowadays. Uh, we have lots of questions about sort of lessons from your experience, And Let me let me bring two of them together. The first one is, what do you know today that you wish you had known at age 18 when you were starting in college? And the other one is, given your, your, your life since, what do you think the role of luck is in success? And is your answer today to that question the same as it would have been 40 years ago? Geez, what I didn't know when I was 18, as
2: they say, could have filled a book and you just got <laughs> it. Uh, and, and, you know, I learned that people aren't always nice. Uh, I used to think people were nice. And, you know, sometimes when you're competing, um, it can be a big pie, but they think it's a small pie. And sometimes they'll do something to defeat you, which is not, uh, you know, does, it doesn't meet a moral uh, or ethical construct uh, and and um that that's one of the things i learned I, I, another thing i learned uh it is, is that when you do innovative things most people have no interest in that in other words you, you can come up with a new concept to do something that's absolutely going to work and 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 you can share that with someone and they go Oh, that's interesting. And then they just go back to what they're doing as what you've invented or uh, identified is going to basically make their lives very difficult. People who are having success don't want to change what they do. Mm. It's, It's a shocking thing. I always love, you know, sort of discordant information and, you know, sort of what's happening underneath the hood in a way. Uh, most people, they'll just keep doing something that works until it doesn't work. The, the key in life is not to wait until it doesn't work. Uh, you're supposed to see the next new thing, but people's lack of curiosity and fear of abandoning the paradigms that have gotten them to wherever they are is, is reasonably, uh, stunning. Uh, and it's not even in their self-interest, but they, they do it anyhow um so so th- th- those are some 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 things um i i've also learned that 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 the world um w- 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 will really make way uh for for new things if you have a powerful idea and um uh, but it's the power of the idea uh it's got to be powerful it's got to be something that can drag along a crowd because it's so wonderful, uh, that, that, um, you can assemble e- enormous, um, uh, resources, uh, uh, in our society, uh, today. Uh, and, and that's something I, I couldn't have, uh, uh, uh imagined. Uh, and the, the value of luck, huh, mm-hmm. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, and so, sometimes you're lucky when you meet someone, right? But you meet them because you're in a certain place. How did you get to that place? It's because you weren't in some other place, right? You chose to be somewhere. Uh, you, you chose to be in the traffic, if you will, where you would meet someone. And so, so, so yes, the actual meeting of the person or learning something it, it, it involves luck uh but that luck is a culmination of a whole variety of other decisions uh that, that that you make um if if you're only doing something where one piece of luck works for you for the rest of your life you are one lucky person the rest of us not so lucky <laughs> we have to keep reinventing things doing new things so so luck in that sense, may help you get started, but it is not a sustaining principle. And in a rapidly changing world, if you think you're going to depend on luck uh, to prosper or win the game or do well or whatever, um, you define uh, a positive. um, Nobody's lucky that often. Uh, You may have one piece of luck, you may have two pieces, you need so many decisions in the real world uh, that luck itself uh, may may be a starter, uh, but, but it's not a strategy.
0: There are a few questions, Steve, about the value of an MBA. And I'm looking here a question uh, from Umberto, who's a Spanish student at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., who says, in your book, you mentioned that you were close to dropping out from Harvard Business School. Do you think in today's society and in today's business world, have MBAs lost their value? Would you advise someone to get an MBA?
2: Well, I don't think they've lost their value. I I think uh, technology and and, and the, the rapid access to data and information in today's world You could argue might make it a little less necessary. Uh, what I found probably 15 years ago, so I'd have to update it, uh, is, is that you could do the computational elements, uh, of entry level jobs, uh, quite well. Um, and, 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 you know, continue to learn. Um, what we used to find is when you hit about your fifth year, uh, you started struggling because you, you could do everything perfectly, but you didn't have the context uh, to think things through, to understand how everything was integrated. Uh, and and so what we found uh, is is that uh, students or, or younger younger professionals uh, weren't going to make it uh, all the way through the system because they were quote missing something. Uh, and and so. Uh, we we had a policy that they should go and, and get an mba because there is something to be learned i mean i if i didn't get an mba um, i wouldn't be on your video uh, i'll tell you that uh it was really central uh, for me because i didn't know anything uh and and so you know i as i said i didn't have an economics course i didn't know what i was doing except you know i i, I was pretty good at certain things but you know for me it was you know, advanced education, which was also base level, uh, you know, education for me. Now, uh, some of our people at work uh, go through uh, without going back for an MBA. Uh, Some of them, you know, happen to be extraordinary people and we're better at teaching them now because society generally is a lifetime learning uh, uh, operation if you're in a knowledge business. You, you have to keep educating your people. You're not done. And, and so we can sub, uh, a bit, substitute a bit, uh, for that. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, well-trained MBAs, uh, they're, they're excellent, excellent. Uh, and so I, I, I like the MBA, uh, program. I, you know, I teach a case, uh, on, um, Blackstone once a year at Harvard Business School, and um, these people are so much smarter than my group of basically dodos uh, back in 1972. These people who are back are great, Uh, and hiring them is an extremely smart thing for people to do. So I'd say I'm, I'm pretty much of a booster, no doubt for MBA education.
0: Thank you, Steve. We're up to 147 questions. So I've been trying to sort of ask them in blocks. uh, Most of the questions so far were about sort of life lessons and uh, some of the main ideas and points in your book. There are also a lot of questions about finance and the role of finance. Uh, And one way to summarize those questions might be this. you know, finance is, is, is important for economic growth and developing and getting resources to people who have good projects. But, people add, several questions make this point. We've also seen some uh, behavior in finance that was not exactly stellar. We've seen recently why uh, one MDB, Wirecard, of course, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we had the world financial crisis and some dealings there, which were not exactly exemplary either, where is finance and in particular, where is regulation going wrong uh, and what needs to change to avoid this kind of thing in finance?
2: Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, the, um, there's so many different answers to that. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you give people access to credit, um, in large amounts, many of them will do things that are wise. Just given the array of humans, uh, you know, some will do things that, that are really uh, on, on the line. Um, and so, so, so there is a, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a role, you know, for uh, uh, regulation. Uh, and um, uh, on the other hand, the, the, the system itself. Uh, basically uh, uh, works uh, pretty well. Uh, and uh, even today, uh, given the pressures uh, on um, financial institutions, get, given uh, the problems with the pandemic, uh, they're holding up amazingly well uh, because uh, uh, regulation uh, has worked. One, one thing, uh, I've looked back over my life. I've known almost every uh, uh, decent-sized criminal uh, in the financial community. And I've met these people, uh, and I usually knew do nothing with them. It must be like a sixth sense. Uh, The only one I really didn't know was uh, Madoff because he didn't want to be known. He kept away from people like me. He was smart because we'd sniff you out. Uh, and uh, so, so, what have I learned with all these weird humans? They're mostly impatient. They want to get someplace before the system allows them to get there. They're, they're, they're people who cut corners, um, um, and and you usually can sense that uh with with people some are highly convincing uh people it's it's just an assemblage of a large group of people if you get you know sort of hundreds of thousands of people and assemble them you'll get a few rotten apples if you will um but but the system itself has worked pretty well occasionally it gets interfered with by the political system uh which drives financial institutions to do unnatural acts. Uh, so, so, you know, part of the antecedents of the global financial crisis in 2008 was, was government mandates on uh, uh, lending uh, to, to people who couldn't afford to pay back mortgages. And, and so, so what happened, that was a government mandate. Uh, and, and so by the time somebody invented securitization uh, so that whoever was making the loan thought they were transferring the risk to someone else. The number of loans to that group that couldn't pay back it was up six times over historic averages. And 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 so you ended up with a crisis of people who couldn't pay loans back. And, you know, there wasn't full disclosure uh, to them. Uh, you know, thought some of them thought they were getting free houses. I don't know where they came up with that. But had the government not done that, that crisis wouldn't have happened. Uh, So there's an intersection of what governments ask people to do, some bad people, um, uh, you know, sort of weird ones. I mean, the guy from Wirecard I had dinner with in the south of France. I mean, who was this guy? It's like, I don't even know how I got to the dinner. Somebody else invited me to a dinner. He was a guest of somebody else. And it just you sort of said, what's this company doing? How quickly is it doing it? And and so you find these things every once in a while uh, that 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 happen. So I, I didn't give you a compelling answer because I, you know, from knowing so many of these people, uh, I shake my head and say, what were they thinking? Because it's very hard to keep a fraud going for, for a while. You can do it. I found one group that did it for like 12 years. They kept moving boxes around uh, in, in, in their different factories, and fooling their accountants that those were sales. That was a live inventory. They were empty boxes. Um, stuff happens periodically. But the system itself um, is is. Is quite strong. It's quite strong.
0: Steve, one, one issue of the day, of course, is finance and, 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 and the problems and frauds that we've seen there. Another big issue nowadays, and we have several questions about this, is taxes. Uh, in, in, in the wake of COVID, many countries have run up their public debts, which is a reasonable thing to do in the middle of a crisis but at some point those debts have to be paid and that uh, probably sooner or later in many countries will mean higher taxes. Uh, one of uh, the questions asked is that you, you, know, you are on the record as being against a wealth tax in the US. So if it is not a wealth tax, what other taxes um, uh, need to be raised so that countries like the US can spend more on infrastructure, climate change, education, et cetera? And if it's not taxes, how else do we pay for these very necessary investments?
2: Well, this is the question to which there is no uh, satisfactory or harmonic answer. Um, and and uh, there are many different ways uh, to tax. You can tax based on transactions. Uh, you add transaction fees to uh, things. You increase uh, tax rates on uh, certain uh, uh, activities. Uh, you uh, uh, tax uh, individuals uh, in the United States uh, uh, based on what the new administration is talking about. I think we'd be the most progressive uh, in the world. Uh, and we already have a society where the top 1% is paying about uh, 40 to 43% of the taxes, but they're not paying their fair share. <laughs> where are you going to get this money how much are these people going to do if they're already doing that uh what's happening with the other ninety nine percent uh and and so you know each group with taxes always looks and says well i 'm doing this, why don't you do that uh, you know a classic way of dealing with these kinds of issues is through inflation uh and, and, and in effect making your debts not as important uh you know for payback mm-hmm. uh and that looks like a tough thing to do right now, uh, because all central banks uh, are, are, are putting interest rates down to close to zero uh, to to make sure uh, that the system uh, can uh, finance itself. Uh, but but I, I think that, um, you know, nobody's cracked this code of where all the money comes from, as each, uh, um, you know, liberal democracy keeps printing money. Uh, to you know, protect its its uh, citizens. So I don't have a silver bullet for you in terms of uh, this answer. I I wish I did, but I haven't heard anything from almost any uh, any you know sort of government anywhere in the world that really sort of uh, addresses this. Because the higher you tax, you also sometimes adversely affect economic growth uh which which makes it harder to put people uh to work so so uh, i've failed this course uh in terms of giving you a brilliant uh answer but m- maybe you can answer that
0: uh instead well, of me i'm i'm a macroeconomist and i love fiscal and monetary debate so let me stick with this question for a minute you mentioned printing money forever that's probably not going to work you mentioned you didn't use this term, but you 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 alluded to financial repression, which is forcing people to hold government debt. That's probably not a good idea either so it's going to have to be some kind of tax probably at some point of the options out there um and given of course that you know tax take in the u s is twenty seven percent of GDP and in many other developed countries it's thirty or forty percent. Which of the tax options would you prefer if one is necessary well i I don't really
2: know what the right answer is uh, on that. And it's actually something I haven't spent a lot of time on uh, mm-hmm. because someone else is gonna make that decision for me. What, what I think about doesn't matter.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, on, on that point, there are lots of questions about politics and let me, let, let me turn to those. And many unsurprisingly, given that the United States had an election ten days ago, are about the current state of politics in the u s uh and of course the fate of the Trump administration and of the incoming administration there are you know lots and lots of these questions, but let me let me summarize them in the following way. You know we have been talking about uh, about what you describe in the books as the values of Blackstone, which are you know values of inclusion. And values uh, of uh, doing the right thing. Do you think these values are present and visible today in U.S. politics? Are they are they visible in uh, in what the Trump administration is doing? Uh, how should these values inform uh, the administration's uh, choices right now? Given that uh, you know the White House is yet to acknowledge the result of the election. Well,
2: I, I think we're at the ending part of uh, an election, uh, and, you know, the votes are, you know, pretty much all in and uh, counted at least once, uh, you know, we have a procedure uh, in in our country where we select uh, what are called electors uh, on December 6th, um, which isn't too far away. Uh, And then they vote, I think it's on December 12th, Uh, and then the results are reported on January 6th uh, and and, you know and then you have a president Um, that you know um, to do that each state has to um, have its secretary of state um, uh, you know sort of certify what what the results are and and that's going to start happening uh, pretty quickly and I think you'll get, uh, you know, that, that result. And, and in all likelihood, it will reflect uh, pretty much where we are uh, today. Uh, and then we'll move forward. Uh, and uh, we'll have a transition, uh, much like uh, we, we normally do. Uh, in the year 2000, we didn't, didn't even resolve a election until two, December 12th. Uh, and, and now it's what is it uh, November? Is it the fourteenth today, uh, the thirteenth, something like that? Uh, and, and, and we have an enormous, uh, you know, set of uh, pressures on decision making. So, so I, I think this um, it's going to take you know uh, just a little bit longer. We've had unprecedented types of um, amounts of votes. Uh, we've never had advanced voting like this everywhere, <laughs> uh, because of COVID. We've never had, uh, you know, sort of the number of, of mail ballots. I don't know whether it's 40% of a total vote. Um, uh, you know, this is, this is not, uh, business as usual. Uh, although it actually is business as usual. You know, there are votes, people count them, they'll rack them up and, and, and we'll move. We'll move on with, with, with the country's uh, transition. And I, I think, uh, you know, the Biden people are already, you know, making enormous numbers of plans and, and um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this period. It won't be as, as uh, easy as some other periods, but, you know, we'll get through it. It'll be fine.
0: There are also a bunch of questions, uh, Steve, as you can imagine, uh, about what uh, a Biden administration ought to be doing, uh, and let me uh, ask some of those. And you know, we're beginning to run short of time, so th- this may be the last question from my side before I hand it over to Minouche. But um, there were questions about taxes, which we, which we discussed already. There are questions about China. You are a person who's been very involved with China what uh, a Biden administration ought to be doing vis-a-vis China. And um, let me just check on, oh, and yes, there are a number of uh, British students concerned with Brexit who say, will a Biden administration make it more likely or less likely that the UK will manage to have a free trade agreement with the United States? Well, I'd say on that last one, um, uh that there's enormous
2: uh, uh, affection uh, for the UK in the United States, um, uh, despite you burning the White House in uh, eighteen twelve or thirteen or something, uh, and you know, um, I, I, I think uh, people would like to, um, you know, help uh, the UK, and um, it's obviously a difficult decision that that you all made. Uh, and And it leaves you uh you know somewhat alone uh and and so that's usually when people reach out and and try and help and you know we're, we're long term uh, uh bulls on uh the u k uh at Blackstone and um you know sort of um english common law uh the use of english uh you know being clever uh being ethical, uh, you have an opportunity to reset uh, your country uh, very much, uh, you know, like some some um, North Atlantic version of Singapore, uh, if if you do things right. Uh, and and so, to the extent that you need uh, help, I I don't think the nature of um, whether it was the past administration or the one that's coming up, would turn their back uh, on on the UK.
0: What about China, Steve? Uh, And and while we're in China, there are a couple of questions also on Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, uh, some people say, has been fighting for its freedom. How should that be a a part of the relationship between the United States and China under a Biden administration?
2: I, I think nobody knows the answer to that. Uh, In the sense that, you know, when Hong Kong was passed on, it was one country, two systems, Uh, but it is one country. And so, 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 so the idea of how you deal with, with that, uh, other other than uh, protesting, uh, how how do you really uh, enforce full levels of uh, democracy as, as you would have it in the UK, uh, I I think is, uh, is is um, you know um, yeah, difficult to, to have on an identical basis. They're going to end up with a different uh, type of system, um, and, and, and of course there was some reaction finally from China, um, you know, just to stabilize, um, you know, security and other types of things, and uh, how, how you thread your way through that, um, you know, uh, is is um, It it feels to me uh, to be um, uh, quite quite difficult, um, uh, other than the fact that Hong Kong will function. Um, They're very practical, as you know, uh, and and they'll find a way to make Hong Kong work. Um, uh, but, But in terms of full democratic rights of the type that you would have in the UK or the US, that was probably never fully on the table. Uh, and, you know, wouldn't be today. You know, some version of it would, but not our version. Uh, the other question was about China.
0: Yes, well, you know, about generally, given your 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 commitment to um, an interest in China and given the recent tension between uh, the US and China over trade and many other things, how do you see that uh, china u uh, s relationship developing under a new administration
2: well i i, I think uh it, it certainly got uh, to to a point of enormous difficulty uh now and uh you also can't uh, i think uh underestimate the impact of the pandemic having come from china uh you know leaving china as more of a target uh you know for people's uh Uh, anxieties and difficulties, um, uh, which is added to already a a competitive, uh, long term competitive uh, uh, relationship. Uh, And and so uh, I think whenever in our country you have a change of administration, uh, you you have a change in look. uh, You have an opportunity for certain types of uh, resets. uh, I'm going to be on a video tomorrow morning uh, with uh, you know, one of the top people um, you know, in, in China who's asked the exact same question you did. Uh, and so I'm not going to spill the beans with you, uh, uh, but, but it is important that we find things that we can deal with uh, that are in the interests of both countries. And, and there are numerous issues uh, that there are. And I think that's the way uh, you restart, uh, you know, sort of the relationship, uh, which, which really has been uh, you know, sort of uh, beaten up uh, uh, currently um, uh, and, and not functioning well uh, for, for either side. And one thing to keep in mind, since this is the London School of Economics, uh, that uh, the U.S. and China together, depending upon what measures you use, are either 35% of the world economy or approaching 40. I, I think there are over 220 countries, something like that. And if you have 1% of those countries comprising a third to 40% uh, uh, of the world's economy, this is uh, an issue that's going to have to be addressed and there's going to have to be uh, a better um, resolution uh, of issues between them just because the sheer scale uh, of these two countries is um,
0: um, warrants uh, that level of attention. Thank you, Steve. Well, given the size of both the U.S. and the Chinese economy, we all hope that the two countries will find their way. Um, just for the record, uh, the number of questions that came in was 176. Regrettably, we are nearly out of time. We wish we had more time to discuss these subjects and others. And I'm going to hand it back to Minouche. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Andres. Um, Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I think your your message, that good can come out of crises and that so much of your business success was about being open to change before it was necessary. Uh, And, uh, and being ahead of opportunities for change and not being complacent is probably a very good set of lessons to leave us with at this particular moment in history. And you have led a very interesting life. And as a result, written a very interesting book and so thank you for that and, uh, and hopefully some of the lessons that you've drawn out from your life will, will be helpful to all of us in navigating some very tumultuous times that still lie ahead of us. So thank you again for joining us and thank you to everyone in the audience for coming and please do join us for other events at the London School of Economics uh, in future and have a good evening and take care of yourselves.